Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by First Baptist Church. Here at FBC, it's our mission to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, and we hope that this message helps you continue to grow in your faith. This audio is property of First Baptist Church, but feel free to give away copies of this message in the hopes that others will be impacted by what they hear. For more information about FBC, or if you want to stay connected with us, visit our website at fbclloyd.ca or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks, and enjoy the latest from FBC. Man, I love that song. Thank you, worship team. And good morning to everyone. Well, this is the second week in a row that Pastor Doug hasn't been up here preaching. And so my job this morning is very obvious, and that's to uh, nurse you through till the doctor returns. Uh, Also, due to the fact that we're in full summer camp mode and Ryan's been working out at the camp, it's been three weeks since Pastor Ryan has been up here speaking. And so as a show of solidarity to any of you who are just missing Pastor Ryan, I thought maybe I'd grow my hair out and wear skinny jeans this morning. (laughs) But uh, I I quickly uh, thought that, you know, if I was going to do that thing with the hair, I needed to start 10 years ago, not 10 days ago. And I discovered that uh, skinny jeans don't come in a 4XL. (laughs) Apparently that's an oxymoron. You know, before I had the privilege of uh, joining the staff team here at FBC, my wife and I moved to the area and we just started attending the church, uh, just as you are sitting in the pews. And I still recall the first two or three times that we came here, some of the things that I noticed about church here that just really impressed me as a newcomer And uh, I just thought I'd share some of them today as as I was reflecting. uh, We noticed right off the bat that people were friendly. Greeters at the door and the ushers, people out in the foyer. We noticed that they served Tim Horton's coffee in the foyer. And not only that, but they gave us this welcome packet with a $10 Tim's card in it. I thought, hey, that's pretty cool. But we we noticed right off the bat that the music was awesome. And we, we really enjoyed that. It just prepared our hearts for the morning. And then I also noticed over the first few weeks that Pastor Doug and Pastor Ryan exchanged these friendly jabs from the front, and I really enjoyed that. I took that as a sign that the staff really liked each other and uh, got along well. And uh, and so here I am now, and I'm I'm tempted to enter into the fray, but I also realize that I make a pretty big target for them to fire back at, quite literally. And so uh, today I've decided to maybe just uh, suppress that urge, uh, kind of for the same reason that I don't do paintball. I mean, uh, where's the challenge for the other participants? It's like, got gored, got gored, pow, got gored. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just uh, step lightly here this morning. We love you, <laughs> Last Sunday... Uh, one of our camp speakers, Vin Doan, was here, and Vin did an excellent job. And if you were here, you'll realize that, that Vin speak, speaks or spoke in this, in this incredible uh, Australian accent. And I don't know about you, but I could, I could listen to an Australian accent or a British accent all day long. But the one thing I'm not going to do is try to compete with that, because I've got a, a Scandinavian background, and those Swedish or Norwegian accents just don't, to me, seem very conducive for preaching, uh, or for doing anything else, for that matter, where you want to sound somewhat intelligent. (laughs) 
I mean, uh, hearing to fearing to bork, bork. I mean, <laughs> that, that just doesn't cut it, you know. So I'm, I'm uh, not going to go there. I'm going to stay with uh, plain old vanilla voice uh, this morning, and so you're stuck with that. Uh, two weeks ago, Pastor Doug kicked off our summer series on becoming more like Jesus Christ. And in that particular message, he focused on the area of growing in our humility. And I'm, uh, I have the privilege this morning of bringing the second message in that series. And we're going to be talking this morning about growing more like Jesus by, by growing in our understanding and in our practice of love. You know, public speaking is an interesting dynamic. Do you realize that in some national surveys, uh, the fear of public speaking is ranked as people's number one fear? Comedian Jerry Seinfeld had some fun with that. He, he pointed at a recent survey that had come out down in the States where public speaking was ranked as fear number one and death was ranked as fear number two. And so Jerry says, uh, that means that if you're at a funeral... Most people would rather be the one in the box than the one that has to give the eulogy, <laughs> which is just crazy when you think about it. But I get it. Public speaking can be a little intimidating, standing up front all by yourself, you know, just out there having to talk to people. But then the, the practice of preaching carries with it a couple of other kind of unique dynamics. And one of those is the, the weight of the message itself. You're proclaiming the truths of God, unpacking God's word to people. And, and it's a message that you're bringing that has eternal value and eternal consequences. And, and you can start wondering at, at times as the preacher, um, you know, am I capable enough to present a message of this importance? I mean, what if I'm the weak link in the chain that causes people to miss God's truth? And then there's another dynamic going on because you're calling people to, to change. You're, you're, you're trying to motivate them and inspire them to reach for you know, higher levels of living. And the preacher can sometimes say, who am I to tell other people how to live? In any given topic or subject, the preacher is very much still a work in process themselves. And they can wonder, am I worthy? And I'll have to admit that over the course of preparing for the message this morning, both those weights rested on me. Because first of all, I'm very much a work in process in the topic that we're looking at this morning. And secondly, I think that this is one of the most important, most critical, most vital, foundational elements of truth that, that God has given us. And so there's that weight of the importance of the message as well. Uh, becoming more like Jesus Christ. You know, it's, it's amazing, really, that we even have that opportunity to pattern our lives after Christ. If you think about it for a moment, you know, God exists on a, on a level and on a plane that just so vastly surpasses ours. That if, if God hadn't chosen to reveal himself to us, we really would have very little context to even begin to understand who God is, let alone his desire for a relationship or his plans and his expectations for us. But God in his love chose to communicate with us. And he did that first of all by giving us the Bible, written account of God's dealings with humanity. And, and the Bible's great. It gives us all kinds of insight about who God is and, and what his plans for us are and his provisions for us. 
But written communication, written guidelines always have a little bit of limitation to them when it comes to, you know, how does this apply to my life, to the everyday world that I'm in, you know, uh, and yet God took it one step farther. And he actually sent his son into this world, and Jesus walked where we walked. Yes, a few years ago, but facing a lot of the same things that we face. And so we have an actual human life now that we can look at, that we can uh, use as our example, that we can pattern our, our lives afterward, after, that actually reveals God. First uh, John, or I should say, uh, first chapter of John uh, says, says it this way. It says... Talking about Jesus, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And a few verses later, in verse 18, he says, No one has, see, has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. The life of Jesus makes God known to us. The Word became flesh and, and, and lived with us. It's an amazing truth. And so this opportunity to become more Christ-like, to, to try to ex follow the example of Jesus, is, is, an, is in fact an amazing opportunity that we don't want to overlook. To become more like Jesus Christ and in an essence becoming more like God. You know, in providing focus to that goal, uh, we looked two weeks ago at the area of humility, and this week uh, we're going to look at and talking about the subject of love. Now, when I said that I believe that this is one of the most important, vital, critical, foundational truths that God has for us, that, that wasn't just an arbitrary statement. It certainly wasn't because I'm the one talking this morning, and uh, it wasn't just my opinion but I make that statement because God himself revealed that to us very clearly in his word. Uh, if we listed the, uh, a number of God's commands that he has for us, uh, his expectations for us, we'd have quite a list. And as this keeps, to, keeps playing out, it's good, we're going to end up with 24 different um, characteristics or, or commands, expectations that God has for us as Christians. And if I were to say, okay, we are going to sit here this morning until we as a group have prioritized this list into what is most important to least important, I dare say that we would be here for hours if we took that task seriously. And there'd be all kinds of discussion about which one of these things is most important. Because each and every one of them is, is of value and, and great worth in their own right. Uh, I, I think we'd probably never really fully arrive at consensus because there'd be differences of opinion. But God didn't give us that responsibility. He didn't leave us guessing in this area. God very definitively states throughout Scripture that the absolute number one list, uh, item on his list of priorities, the absolutely most important absolutely most supreme, is love. 
The first example that I want to look at in Scripture is found in Matthew 22. And on that occasion, this is talking about, uh, about a situation where Jesus is in a, in a public place, and he's uh, surrounded by and, and in discussion with a number of the leaders of the, the religious leaders of the day. And there's a group there from the sect, sect called the Pharisees. I'm sorry, the Sadducees. We'll get to the Pharisees in a minute. And the Sadducees uh, have been debating, having this debate with Jesus about uh, whether or not there's going to be a resurrection from the dead. The Sadducees believed and taught that there would be no resurrection. And Jesus has a dialogue with them and puts them in their place. And then uh, the Pharisees get together and they say, okay, it's our turn. And they send their designated pitcher onto the mound to throw a fastball at Jesus. And he gets up and he asks Jesus this question. In uh, beginning in verse 30, 34, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, if you were here a few weeks ago in one of Pastor Ryan's talks, he mentioned that in the, uh, the Old Testament law, there were over 600 commandments. And I'm sure, you know, if, if prioritizing a list of 24 would have been a challenge for us this morning, imagine sitting down and trying to prioritize a list of over 600. And I'm sure there was a variety of opinions among the, the religious leaders and the different groups about what was most important. But Jesus doesn't hesitate for a moment. Jesus says, the greatest commandment is to love. He says, Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. For all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Now, there's a couple of interesting uh, points or uh, aspects about how Jesus answers this question that I want us to focus on here for a minute. First of all, Jesus was asked, what is the single greatest commandment? And he responds by giving two commandments. So either Jesus is very poor at math, or he had a distinct reason on why he answered in such a manner. And I think the latter is obviously true. Based on other, other passages in Scripture, I think Jesus wanted to take this opportunity to just declare how inseparable love for God is with love for our fellow human beings. And so he says, the, most, the greatest commandment is to love God, but this one's just like it. You can't give the one without the other. It's also the greatest commandment to love one another. There's a second aspect of Jesus' answer recorded here that I also find very interesting. You see, Jesus has just said that to love God and to love others is the greatest commandment. And then he underscores that with a bright red, wide-tipped felt marker when he says in verse 40, all of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. It's an incredible statement when you think about, think about it. All of the laws, we just said there was, there was over 600 commandments in the, in the Old Testament law on how, God's expectation of how people would live. All of the prophets, all of those different times recorded in Scripture where God 
gave a, a very specific message to one of his spokespersons to deliver to his people. All of the prophecies about the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ, all of it, everything, hangs on love. There's also a bit of a subtlety here that's easy to overlook that I thought was kind of cool. And that was Jesus' uh, specific choice of words here. All the law and all the prophets. And the word that Jesus used there that's translated hang is the very same word that a little bit later in Scripture is used to describe Jesus. when he's hanging on the tree, on the cross, for our sakes, for our sins. And to me, that just underscores how everything hangs on the nail of love. Pastor Doug, where do you keep those Kleenexes up here? The next passage of Scripture that I want us to look at is, is 1 Corinthians 13, known as the love chapter, kind of very, uh, gets a lot of, uh, a lot of play at weddings and different things, familiar to many of us. And, you know, I thought about this, and I thought, if I was uh, going to be thrown in prison for the next 20 years, and I was told that I could rip one page out of my Bible to take with me to have to read during that time, there's a very good possibility that I would choose the page that contained 1 Corinthians 13. It's definitely one of my favorite sections or chapters in the Bible. Every single time I read that chapter, I walk away feeling challenged and inspired to become a better Christian and, and to become a better man. Don't always follow through on it the way I should. But when I don't, it's the fault of myself. Oh, where were we? 1 Corinthians 13. Now, if you've uh, been, a, been reading your way through the Bible and you've, you've, you've been reading along and you've got to this point in, in the Bible and you still haven't noticed or, or fully appreciated the importance of love, uh, you're not going to make it through this chapter without uh, coming to that conclusion because it's the, the supremacy of love is the unmistakable focus of the author Paul here when he writes the, this chapter. And he hits the ground running hard. He doesn't pull any punches. He wants to make sure that people get the message. And so beginning in the first three verses... Paul writes, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship, that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. And here we learn something very transforming about love. You see, love, we talked about how it was number one on God's priority list. But it's not the way 
that a priority list might normally work. It's not like love came in at number one with a 98 and, and faith and worship came in with a, a 96 and a 95. In God's book, there's only love. And then there's love plus. And nothing, nothing in the absence of love adds up to anything. In the absence of love, everything else scores a big fat zero. There's only love and love plus. Love plus faith. Love plus worship. Love plus service. Love plus wisdom. Love plus generosity. Those are the only combinations that count, that make a difference. Everything else in the absence of love is absolutely nothing. That's mind-boggling, startling, shakes you up a little bit when you think about it. It's kind of like those uh, epoxy glues that come in two tubes. That first tube, in the absence of the second tube, that first tube does nothing. It's useless. It's just a tube of goop. It's only when you add the second tube, the catalyst, that it turns into a formidable mixture that's able to accomplish what all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't do, to glue old Humpty back together again. And it's the same with love. Absolutely nothing that we do in our worship or our service to God accomplishes anything in the absence of love. Absolutely nothing sticks without love. Nothing. We are nothing. We gain nothing. In fact, according to the example that Paul gave a little earlier, it might actually even be worse than that. It might be worse than the fact that we don't just gain, you know, something of value, that nothing of value comes out of it. We actually may be having a negative effect without love. In his opening a verse in this statement, he talked about a clanging gong and a, uh, what's the other one? <laughs> yeah, the symbol, um, resounding symbol, what was the term? Feedback time here. I, I planned this, just an audience interaction. Resounding gong or a clanging symbol. Clanging is the word I was looking for. Now think about that, a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal, it's worded in such a way that helps you realize that without the appropriate musical accompaniment, those two things are just plain irritating. For somebody to just be clanging a cymbal or a gong repeatedly with nothing else mixing with it, it's just an irritant. And in the same way, those who, of us who profess to be Christians, but are operating and living our lives in the absence of love, where we're not living in a love plus mode, we, we tend to, you know, in the same way, like I said, the, the, uh, the, the noise is bothersome. We, as people, fall on the spectrum often somewhere between being slightly off-putting and totally repugnant to those around us if we live our lives in the absence of love. If we proclaim our truths, if we if we try to do our Christian things, but minus love. It's actually having a negative effect. 
After establishing the necessity and the supremacy of love, Paul goes on in the next section of the chapter to define for us exactly what this love that he's talking about looks like in action. And that's important because love, like many other words we use, we, we toss them around, we use them so indiscriminately, we use them for everything that they lose a lot of their, their true meaning. And after a while, it just becomes another generic term. We, tell, we, you know, we love each other, we love ourselves, we love our country, we love our pets, we love shopping, we love sleeping, we love stuff that's free, we love stuff that's expensive, we love colors, we love coffee, we love our privacy, we love attention, we love our music, and some people even love math. We love king-size bed and compact cards. Cars, we love Apple products, we love apple pie, we love bacon, we love the bucks. We love all kinds of things. And before we know it, after so much indiscriminate use, the word love just starts to blur into an in, indistinguishable word and meaning that really carries no weight for us. And so it's important for us that Paul gives us this definition of what this love that he's talking about actually looks like in action. So picking up the, the well, we won't go there quite yet. We, we see, as we'll look at it here in a moment, we'll see that this is a, a totally radically different kind of love than we encounter on a daily basis and that what we typically employ. This is an agape love. It's, a, it's the Greek word for love that uh, is used throughout these passages that we're talking about this morning. See, in the Greek language, they had a more specific language than we do in many regards, and they had four words, predominantly, that are translated into our single English word, love. And so this is, what we're talking about here is agape love. Not to be confused with eros, which is a romantic or a sensual love, or storgi, which is love for family, you know, parent to child, child to parent. Or philia, which is brotherly love, city of Philadelphia named after this. You know, love, affection for a friend. This is agape love. And agape love is a, is a deeper, pure, untarnished love that originates with God. He's the... He's the this, he's got the secret recipe. You know, this is, this is only from God. He's the only distributor. This is the only source of agape love. So picking up in uh, 1 Corinthians 13, again, at verse 4. And each time the word love is used, it's the agape love we're talking about. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Agape love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Agape love never fails. I think if I had to choose one passage of Scripture that best exemplifies what it means to be Christ-like, to, to live our lives like Jesus, I, I'd give very serious consideration to this passage here. 
Because it's absolutely crucial. If we're going to be like Jesus, then we have to love like Jesus. And this, these verses here tells us what love like that looks like in action. This is what Jesus looked like when he loved. This is what God looks like when he loves. Paul goes on to conclude his treatise on love uh, in verses 8 through 13. He says, love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. And then he illustrates that with a, with a couple of examples of childhood and of, of a mirror, an image in a mirror. He says, when I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, but when I became a man, I put away the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, then we will see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall be, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And then just in case someone has possibly still missed his main point here, uh, he, put, he punches it home one last time, and he says, and now these three remain. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. See, Paul says that our experience in this life is going to look very, very different from our experience in the next life. And he says that a lot of the things that we involve ourselves in here now and a lot of the things that, that we do just aren't going to be brought into eternity because we're doing, the, we're doing things in a partial manner and then we'll be complete. Um, he says, in fact, that only three things are going to make the, the cut into eternity. Faith, hope, and love. And then, then he probably second-guessed himself and he thought, well, just in case that confuses anybody, I better say this once again, but the greatest of these is love. He wants to make sure that that point is not missed. You know, in our desire to be like Jesus, this is the love that we're called to. This is the love plus. This is the catalyst love that has to be added to everything we do in order for it to be worth anything of value. This is the love that validates us as Christians because this is the love that was first showered on us by God. In 1 John, we read the following. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. See, John reminds us here that God the Father so loved the world that he gave he gave that which was most precious to him. He gave the most valuable of gifts. And he gave it to people that didn't even love him. That not only didn't love him, that had actually positioned themselves to be his enemies. And here we see a truth about agape love and what it looks like in action. It's, it's unqualified and unreserved. It's motivated by the heart of the giver, not the worthiness of the recipient. Think about that the next time you're encountering somebody that seems unlovable. 
Agape love is motivated by the heart of the giver, not the worthiness of the recipient. Because if it was, we'd all be in trouble. God would have never loved us first. Of course, the, the example and the great love of Jesus provides us with that, the, kind of the ultimate example of God's love in action. And uh, we see, you know, we talked a minute ago about the Word becoming flesh. And at Calvary, the point of, of Jesus' crucifixion on the cross, that flesh was, was horribly mangled and, and, and beaten uh, for our benefit, which sounds gruesome, sounds terrible. But Jesus, in, in this almost unbelievable act of pure agape love, voluntarily died in our place as a substitutionary sacrifice. He paid the penalty that we owed. He stood in our place, and he did it all out of the motivation of love. John sums that up by saying, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. This is agape love in action here, selfless and sacrificial. In light of that, John goes on to lay out our responsibilities. And he says, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. And that's not a situation that most of us will encounter. So he gives it a little more practical application here. He says, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Agape love is an act of love. It's not a verbal love. A third instruction, uh, a third example that instructs us, found in 1 John, comes from this passage. It says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. You know, God could have stopped with the sacrifice of Jesus that saved us. And, he, and that, that, that would have been an incredible gift. We would have said, you know, we would have been amazed by, by that gift. But agape love didn't stop there. Agape love is lavish. It, it runs wild and free, knows no boundaries. It's generosity exemplified. And God went that step further, and he actually adopted into his family all those that, that through faith, place their, their faith in, in Jesus Christ and accept the gift of his sacrifice. And so we can actually be called the sons and daughters. We sing that song. We are the sons. We are the daughters of God. The Bible says that we are co-heirs with Christ. Absolutely amazing. That's, that's agape love in action, lavish in its application. One last instruction here from our friend John in, in 1 John. He says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. And here we see that God isn't just loving. God doesn't just do love. God, in his very essence, at his very core, is love. And that's why it's both necessary for us as Christians to incorporate love into all that we do to make it the foundation, but it's also why it's possible for us to do so, why it's possible for us to, to demonstrate in our own lives a love that originates with God, because if we've placed our faith in Jesus Christ, 
then God's Holy Spirit resides in us and he will draw God's love out and, and, and let it flow through our lives if we allow him. So where do we go from here? A few practical suggestions. Just start by talking to God about your desire to love the way that you're loved. Pray and ask God to help you start seeing people and the world through his eyes. If you have individuals in your life who mistreat you or are unkind or you might even qualify as enemies, then start praying for them specifically and allow the love from God for that individual to start growing in your life, and it will. Uh, memorize 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 to 7, that describes and defines what agape love looks like in action. And then look for opportunities and pray about for opportunities in your daily life to put those principles into practice. And if you've been content to this point in your life to live in a, in a largely unloving manner, maybe you've just justified it by saying, well, that's just who I am, that's just me, then I'd encourage you to take to heart the warning in that last verse there. Whoever does not love God, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Maybe consider getting down on your knees and repenting and ask God to let his love start flowing through you. Because without love, we are nothing. We gain nothing. You see, exercising love isn't an option. It's God's greatest command. And it's the nail that absolutely everything else hangs on. And now these three remain. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love.